Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hi, Larry and John Gassman with you. It's week number two of our celebration, our 20th anniversary to Maine Menu, which is happening this month in May, even though it was done in April in 2000. We, we, had stuff, we just we wanted had, to make sure that it would last. Well, we had stuff going in April, and, and we couldn't stop. And so we said, well, it's still going to be done. It's just going to be done a month later. So here's what's going to happen tonight, today, whenever you're listening to this, week number one of the show number one, and that's the first 54 or so minutes of the program. Next week, we'll finish off show number one. And then on the 22nd, Main Menu Live returns to ACB Radio. The first hour with an interview and the second hour is devoted to the Main Menu show, where we'll have a roundtable of individuals who have been a part of Main Menu for years, as well as your comments. And you can contribute by emailing or sending an MP3 file to mainmenu at acbradio.org. Now, we will try to get as many on as possible. It really depends on how time constraints go on that May 22nd broadcast. So keep it short, please, and concise. But we invite you to send your wishes, your memories to mainmenu at acbradio.org. Dot org. On the 29th, we'll probably replay the uh, first show we did with Jonathan Mosin, which aired last week. Got some his great reaction from that. His interview, yeah. So this is all main menu month here on ACB Radio. Now let's go back to the very first main menu radio program that Jonathan did. You'll hear the whole show, including some spots from Jim Snowbarger and a few others that were specific to the station back then. Not now. But we're going to take it as a remembrance piece, and you're going to hear the show as it was originally heard back then, at least the first hour of it. And next week, you'll hear the second hour. Now, here's week one of our Salute to Main menu originally broadcast, April 10, 2000. Main menu. Main menu. Main menu. Main menu. Welcome to this inaugural edition of Main Menu and also, of course, the first program on ACB Radio Mainstream. Nice to be here with a new look ACB Radio. Gosh, we've been doing a lot lately. <laughs> and uh, it looks like we have everything up and running so far so good. We have the ACB Radio Cafe playing music by blind and vision impaired musicians. We have ACB Radio Treasure Trove, which is offering old-time radio. And here we are on ACB Radio Mainstream. Don't forget to check out the website. It's a completely rewritten website. Well, we've got a busy program lined up for you for this first edition, but before we tell you about what's coming up, let me tell you a bit about the philosophy of the Main Menu Show. Main Menu is here every week at 1 o'clock GMT on Monday mornings. That's 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday night in the United States, 1 o'clock in the afternoon New Zealand Time, 11 o'clock in the morning on Monday in Eastern Australia. Main Menu is looking at technology, but we use that term in its broadest sense. We're not just talking about blindness technology with respect to computers and screen readers. We're also talking about technology such as microwaves and other appliances, and we're looking at mainstream technology 
from a blind person's perspective. For instance, we hope to have software developers on the program in the coming weeks or web designers of general websites that are particularly accessible or perhaps are not particularly accessible so that we can quiz them about that. So we hope you'll enjoy the program. We're confident it will be your definitive source for technology news as it affects blind and vision impaired people. Welcome to Main Menu. Good to have you along. On the program today, we're going to be talking shortly about what everybody else has been talking about, the Microsoft verdict. What does it mean for the blind and vision impaired? We've got a panel of experts to tell us. We'll also be looking at Kurzweil 1005.0, the Education Division of Learn Out and Houseby, formerly Kurzweil Educational Systems, has just released this following CSUN. And we'll be sp- speaking with the key programmer from uh, Kurzweil, Stephen Baum, about what's in there and looking at the talk of this release, really. And that's real speak. We have a copy of it here and we're going to be putting it through its paces as part of that look at Kurzweil 1005.0. A lot of other features in it too, though, so Stephen Baum will tell us all about them. The Logitech iTouch keyboard allows you to take your keyboard away and of course this has particular benefits for blind people who don't need to be close to a screen. Scott Rakowski tells us all about that. DJC is along looking at a talking microwave with his neighbour Joy Tilton. We'll also hear from Matt Campbell who'll be introducing us to Linux in what will be a regular feature on Main Menu. And we'll also be looking at the pros and cons, the trials and tribulations of being a beta tester in a rather tongue-in-cheek way. All that and more to come on this edition of ACB Radio's Main Menu. The verdict is out. Microsoft has been found guilty of breaching US antitrust law. They have been acting anti-competitively, and the remedies are still to come. Everybody's been talking about it, but what we want to find out is what would it mean, if anything, for blind and vision-impaired people if Microsoft is broken up, or perhaps if some other remedy is found. We're going to discuss that now with a group of people. We have Debbie Cook on the line. Debbie doesn't live too far away from the Redmond, Washington campus of Microsoft, where it all happens. She's also been involved for some time now with computer-related advocacy on behalf of the American Council of the Blind. Kelly Ford is a former employee of the Trace Research Center. He's now involved in assistive technology training and is still a staunch advocate for accessibility. And Dawa Shandro has set up his own website about accessibility. That's how passionately he feels about it. That's proactiveaccess.org. They all join us on the line now, thanks to the uh, conferencing services kindly provided to ACB Radio by Spiderphone. We'll start with you, Debbie. Um, what do you think it all means for blind and vision-impaired people? Wait, I think, you know, it's going to, um, um, it's probably in some ways a little bit premature to totally know, of course, because we don't know exactly, although we know what the verdict is, we don't know exactly how that outcome will play out. Um, I certainly think in the, in the short run there will not be any um, specific issues. My, Microsoft um, has um, done some things which are not product-specific, um, and and so I think that, that those things are probably going to be possible to, to carry out. But one of the things that I think happens in general for people, anytime you have one of these breakups, um, if you look at the history of, of, of telephone company breakups, for example, the, the whole issue of um, as products move away from a, from a central source or from a central connection, who becomes responsible for them? And, and in our world, you know, where we think about that is, you know, I have a PC, I have a screen reader, 
I have an operating system and I have an application, and something has just gone wrong. And, and no one is going to take any responsibility or credit for that event. And, um, and I think we may see that um, become the case a little bit more as we, if we in fact break up, um, separate um, Internet Explorer more from, from the operating system or separate other components from the operating system. But really, until um, recent developments, really, at least with Internet Explorer, for example, until IE4, we weren't that closely tied to the operating system. So in, in some ways, it, it may appear to be business as usual, at least in the short term. Kelly Ford, should we be delighted, concerned, or isn't this really going to matter to us? I think that we should be cautiously concerned. Uh, if Microsoft is merely penalized and has uh, certain restrictions placed on their business practices, uh, perhaps uh, pricing restrictions on the operating system and things like that, I don't think it will have much of an impact on people who are blind. Uh, other than what it does for the main computing population, which would probably be a positive. If Microsoft is broken up, um, I think that we will have to be very concerned. Um, it's hard enough to get the accessibility team talking to all of the various people developing software at Microsoft. I mean, we've seen in certain areas, Internet Explorer and Office, great inroads made where, the, where all the different programmers are communicating. If Office is suddenly not in the same company as the Access team, what reason is there going to be for them to talk at all? And I, I really think that uh, from a disability perspective, I, I would be gravely concerned if my, Microsoft were broken up myself. Daryl Shandre, what's your take on this? Well, first of all, uh, at this point, uh, I come out uh, on Microsoft's side for the sake of accessibility. However, if Microsoft is broken up, uh, I believe that the accessibility concerns will depend on what happens for everybody. I see there are two possible courses that things could take after such a breakup. Number one, things could just become chaotic and Every company that is broken off of Microsoft, uh, the, the operating system company, the web internet browser company, the Microsoft, uh, you know, the office software company, Word, Excel, et cetera, uh, they could just go off and all do their own things and, uh, when, when things are upgraded and changed, they all have their own user interfaces. Or, number two, uh, this could uh, result in some kind of standardization. Uh, maybe some kind of open standards would be uh, uh, implemented over time. If that were the case, uh, possibly we could uh, insert accessibility into those standards. And if that happens, that would be a positive thing for us. It sounds to me like what some of you are saying is that perhaps some of the consumer organizations of the blind should be using their muscle to advocate against a breakup of Microsoft. Has ACB given any consideration to their stance on this, Debbie? Oh, I don't, I don't think we really have formally. I think that, 
I think it's – in the first place, I'm not sure actually that we have much impact on that. This is really on a roll. This is this is one of those deals where the Justice Department is is um, going to actually do a pretty unprecedented thing and is actually taking a position on something. And and there's a lot of – remember that 19 of the 50 states are are involved in this. It's a fairly unprecedented kind of situation. And and I guess I'm not as certain that there will be as much of a of a breakup as an outcome of this as I think there may be um, a requirement for unbundling because the bundling issue has been the issue that has really been a prevalent sore point and a and a prevalent frustration. I mean, if you think about the fact of if you are if you are the CEO of 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 a competitive browser. But but the other guy's browser always comes, you know, with their operating system. I mean, it's bad enough that they control the operating system, but you might concede that, you, you know, I haven't developed an alternative operating system yet. But if I do have an alternative browser, I'd, I'd really like the option, you know, to have my browser be bundled by the customer's choice with the operating system. So what you're talking about is um, is the issues of of whether or not things stay Bundled, and where I think we may um, may lose some ground in terms of the coordination of accessibility is is from the standpoint of of how much of that accessibility comes you know through the operating system and whether the uh, you know and and how closely that's tied. Uh, part of I believe part of their argument you know is the idea that 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 as as they become more closely tied together, they're able to more closely control accessibility. And, you know, I don't know how, I don't know exactly if that's the case or if it's simply the case that the, uh, that Internet Explorer is being a relatively newer product. It was much easier to design accessibility into it. I know, for example, in Office, because I just know this, um, that there are legacy, there's legacy code in Office that actually goes all the way back to um, Word 2 and that they cannot get out and that some of the issues that we have about accessibility in office which is considered a relatively accessible application are barriers that are entrenched in there because of the fact that it's an old old application that is continuously built on um, i know that for example some of the reason that encarta is you know and some of the other applications are not able to be more accessible more quickly is because of the turnaround time that those applications have forced upon them to stay even with the operating system development. If some of those restrictions were lifted, but the commitment to accessibility was still present, we might actually make some progress on some applications we've not made much progress on. So I'm not sure that it that we know necessarily whether we should take that kind of a stand. Right. And here's something to think about, Demi. Yeah. Uh, there's a big if in what you said. Yes. Uh, if the commitment to accessibility, I mean, everyone's got different opinions. I'm not sure how high up the corporate ladder Microsoft's commitment to accessibility extends. Publicly, they'll tell you that it goes to the top. Programmatically and results-wise, I'm not sure that it does. I would agree with you. I, I mean, I don't know how far off of the initial question we want to go, but, you know, I mean, I could give you examples of newer web technologies that Microsoft's deploying that, don't work with active accessibility. Right, exactly. That's that's part of the whole issue is that it hasn't necessarily done them much better to stay in the large corporate structure because active accessibility hasn't been 
we, well, we haven't really heard the term evangelized for a couple of years now, so maybe it's out of phase, but we all know what it means. So it's not been evangelized throughout their culture recently. And I also know from talking to people on, you know, on the office team over time that they're not sure active accessibility is even the way to make office accessible. So, you know, I mean, maybe, I, I guess I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I don't think we have enough data yet to know whether we're going to be better off or worse off. We can get comfortable with what we're, yeah. what we're now familiar with. Uh, and what I would suggest oh, is yeah. that you look at what IBM have done with their accessibility efforts. Uh, they really, although OS2 was kind of in, in the background and not terribly significant these days, they didn't need nearly as much uh, hitting over the head as the consumer movement has no. uh, had to do with Microsoft. You look at Sun, for instance. Okay. Now, Sun has jumped on the accessibility bandwagon pretty readily. Uh, maybe we have got a, a, a culture that's not doing us any good in Microsoft and that we may be better having it broken up. There, there is that possibility. I mean, IBM had OS2 taken off. Uh, it's possible our access would have been a lot further along. I don't know if any of you guys used the IBM screen reader for OS2. Yes. You know, it was pretty slick for what it did, and it was pretty tightly integrated into the operating system. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I, I suppose that in any situation like this, we as advocates can become kind of familiar with the people involved in the processes. And so they're kind, you know, the, the relationship, I think, between the consumer movement, particularly the US consumer movement and Microsoft is a very interesting one. Uh, it's almost become cozy. And there are some who are on the sidelines who actually criticize the consumer movement for being so cozy with Microsoft. Uh, and yet, as Debbie has pointed out, when you actually look beneath the, the glitzy service of, uh, surface of Microsoft Office and Internet Explorer, you know, what else is there really? And, and, but on the other side of that, um, I think the other thing that we really do have to keep in mind, and, and I can be pretty tough on Microsoft at, at points, and, I'm, and although I live near them, I don't have to support them. But, um, but, but, the, but the other part of it that you do have to keep in mind is that at least in terms, terms of current development and software, they, whether you think it's enough, they've really taken a, a leadership role. Now, the problem is, is where are we leading from, of course? You know, and, and, and I think we'd all be in agreement about that. But, you know, and I, I've had a lot of conversations with people at Netscape, for example, and I can tell you that over, over the years, my conversations with people at Microsoft have been better. I mean, I remember my first visit to the campus, and it was not too pleasant. And I remember my most recent visit, and it was better. I mean, much, much better. Well, um, you know. look at this. I mean, Netscape has the first preview version of uh, 6.0 coming out today. Right. Now, how much hype and talk on all the blindness lists are going to be about it or people rushing to download it. Probably not many. No. So Microsoft, I mean, this is a little bit of an overstatement because I think that they, they are at least trying, you know, but, you know, in some ways they're the best of the worst, I mean. Yeah, exactly. I think that's where we're sitting with this. You know, and go, go, believe... talk to, go talk to Intuit. Ask them if they're oh, really God. taking access. Yes, I did that recently. Okay, the other thing that I, so then, so then I think what we're talking about in terms of commitment is not really about the commitment of, of, of Bill Gates or of some other, you know, parts of their corporate structure, but is actually the commitment inside the teams themselves. And whether those teams are part of one structure or not, um, there is actually quite a bit of commitment. And, there's, and, and I think that there's a number of, there are a number of things that are working against them. I mean, time, time constraints, production constraints forced by the operating system, legacy code issues, um, 
you know, whether corporate really puts enough commitment behind it for the amount of work that there really is to do. Um, I, I think that if, if it breaks up or if it diversifies in a significant way, we have a tremendous advocacy responsibility, but I think we can move out there immediately on it and say, you know, now we actually have the potential to, to work with a, a number of, of, of divested organizations to increase accessibility instead of putting all of our eggs in one basket. Um, if that were to happen, and 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 I don't think it will, but if it were to, I think that would be I think that would be a, a real possible way of getting some rather quick, um, again to borrow their term, evangelism in a little bit better into the system. I'd like to ask you a question, Debbie. Yeah. Um, and, and Jonathan and Daryl to think about this because something that Debbie said is something that I've always thought about when it comes to accessibility and all of this. Debbie, you talked about all the constraints that the programmers, let's say, at Microsoft are working against to make access happen. To me right now, the bottom line is that making your software accessible or your website, and for the most part, does not, you know, we live in a, a free enterprise market, and accessibility is not profitable. Yeah, that's right. Okay. What, what I wonder, and, and maybe, Jonathan, we could talk about this a little bit if you're interested, is, whether the Section 508 guidelines and rules that are coming out from the feds will, in some ways, make accessibility profitable, or at least it's something the corporation has to be more aware of, because failure to do it could mean loss of government contracts. Um. If we're going to talk about that, I have a really strong statement to make about that. I worked on the Section 508 um, that... Um, Advisory committee that that you know developed the initial recommendations for the um, for the access board, and um, and and I, what I will say about this, and and for people who aren't maybe totally familiar with with what this is, this is um this is um legislation from the United States Congress that basically would um, tell the federal tells the federal government that it needs to provide comparable access for people with disabilities to. Um, information um, and electronic and information technologies as is provided to the general public. And we spent a lot of time talking about what that was. Now, the, the rule that has actually been um, put forward for public comment, and um, we probably need to actually do a whole um, special discussion somewhere on ACB radio about this so we can explain to consumers what the, what the rule really does say and what some of the problems are. Um, there's a lot of very, very good material in there, but in reality, there are a couple of very serious loopholes that we need to comment on, and one of those is that um, as it stands right now, um, basically what, what they're going to say is that if things are not technologically um, ready, you know, to go, and the, and the examples that they gave were things like um, um, PDAs and things, um, if, if things like this were not, if the accessibility wasn't developed in, you couldn't require that they put it in. You, you, you know, could only require them to do what was considered technologically feasible. And so I, I want Section 508 to, to expand the feasibility of things and prove that they're not technologically feasible. So I don't want to ask you to do things that are impossible, but I don't want to just say, well, we don't have it today, therefore go ahead and buy them. It doesn't matter. They don't have to be accessible. So I'm making a very simplistic discussion of that, but actually Section 508 might make a huge difference 
Um, and it will certainly make a huge difference for products where there is accessibility in those products. Um, but I think it also needs to make a difference when we're talking about these things, about the Microsoft products and things. I think it also needs to make a difference with respect to um, to design. Just in terms of the, the potential um, re uh, remedies that might be applied in the Microsoft case, if you have more... Uh, competition in this market, then clearly there's a lot more pressure on who is first to market with a product, uh, and that in terms of ensuring that provisions such as 508 are actually executed fairly, um, that may be a little bit more difficult because uh, you know you've already cited an example, Debbie, where Microsoft claim that they can't make Encarta accessible because they have to keep up with changes in the operating system. Of course, the irony is that they wouldn't say that we have to leave mouse support out because we haven't got the time, uh, which just goes to show to me that there's still a, a culture in Microsoft that says under certain circumstances you can make accessibility discretionary. But if there is going to be more competition out there, uh, is it going to be even more difficult to enforce uh, these sorts of provisions, or can we rely on them to kind of uh, slow down the, the tide of innovation? This is Daryl. Um, okay, uh, speaking of the competition, if we can get a 508 rule that is uh, somewhat stronger, as uh, some of the stuff I've been reading with the uh, Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, uh, wouldn't uh, it be useful for a competing company, Microsoft or Sun or Netscape or some, somebody like that, uh, say, for example, in the browser market, uh, to advertise to the government, hey, my product is the first to meet 508 standard. It is, uh, it is the most accessible, and if you buy this one, you'll avoid a potential uh, grievance or lawsuit. Mm -hmm. Well, Microsoft was at the table during the, all the 508 discussions, as was IBM. Netscape was not. So that tells you something. Um, so Microsoft has every intention, whether it's one company or, you know, 57 little ones, they have every intention of meeting those standards. They want to sell to the federal government. The federal government is big time procurement. Microsoft um, does, for the products they sell to the federal government, probably pretty closely already meet the 508 guidelines. Um, you know, I'd have, to, I'd have to take a closer look, but for example, in Internet Explorer, which of course is, comes with the operating system, but if it were being sold as a separate product, you know, as a, as a buy-along product, um, it, it, um, it, it is probably already um, compliant. And so, um, you know, because the, the requirements are not, uh, you know, they're not as stringent as they as they might be in some respects, but certainly a lot of other products are not. So, uh, the government, the things that, that the government buys, I mean, the government does buy Office. So, you know, Office and is going to be more likely to be compliant than and again. The example I gave you was Encarta. The government doesn't buy probably a lot of Encarta. So, Encarta, there's not going to be a push on Encarta, and Encarta has a market-driven upgrade requirement that's different than Microsoft's competition, you have to produce a new encyclopedia every year. The whole world of knowledge changes. So that's one of the requirements of having um, a software-based encyclopedia, I guess. So um, so basically, um, yes, I think it's going to make a difference in the areas of software development and in the areas of some of those kinds of things. 
where I'm where I'm not clear and where I have to give some more thought to is it going to make enough difference is in the new technologies in in things like the PDAs and some of those kinds of things where the accessibility of those things is not quite as clearly outlined. We know what to do to make a piece of software accessible. We know exactly what that entails. We don't know what that entails entirely when it comes to things like, um, you know, PDAs. I'm interested, um, just getting back to the accessibility of software, um, Qualcomm is a company that we haven't talked about uh, on this call. And, of course, they make Eudora, which is one of the most accessible email clients out there. And yet they've just gone ahead and, and done that, haven't they? I think they've, they've followed good operating system programming. Part of the reason I think that is, and I'm, I'm not, I don't have an in with Qualcomm, but I do know a bit of the history of Eudora. And, you, you know, Eudora started as uh, one of its early versions was on the Macintosh. And to write successful code for the Macintosh required that you follow a lot more tightly uh, operating system rules for programming. Now, I, uh, I could be totally off base here, and if you guys know I am, feel free to tell me, but I'm guessing that some of that programming behavior of, writing good code, following standard procedure, carried through to the Windows versions of Eudora. And that's my, that's my guess. I don't think Eudora set out and said, I want to write an email program that works well with a screen reader. Oh, yeah. no. In fact, Qualcomm didn't have a clue that that's what it, that it even did. Yeah. And that's one of our problems with, with accessibility. The, the programs that work great don't happen by consciousness, and the programs that work poorly don't happen by consciousness. Yeah. But is, that not, is that not necessarily a bad thing? I mean, here you have somebody who's, or, or a company that's followed conventions and come up with a perfectly accessible product, and surely it follows, therefore, that if everybody followed those same conventions, and Microsoft are, of course, the worst for ignoring their own conventions that they recommend to third-party developers, uh, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. Exactly. If you look at Intuit, again, somebody raised the issue of Intuit earlier, and they're a very good example of a company that actually their, you know, versions of, of for example, Quicken followed proper standards and proper window classification standards and, and, um, and all that sort of thing for a good long time, and they've always incorporated, you know, keystroke commands into the product and, in fact, still have those, although you can't tell what those keystrokes did, but they're there. Um, but now they've completely abandoned any kind of proper controls for their window classes. Uh, they literally draw them on the screen. I mean, they are, they are graphic art um, windows. They are not, they actually all are one class. Um, the whole program now just about is one, one class of window. And yet on the screen, visually, that doesn't look to be the case. It looks cooler and cooler all the time. And when we talk to them about the fact that you, they gave up something that they used to do well, I mean, it isn't like they never did it and have to go out and figure it out. They actually gave it up. And it would be possible to retain that and still have the look and feel that they currently want to have and all of the clutter that they want to create. They have absolutely no interest in this. And we won't get anywhere with this one because there's nothing that will force this issue because Quicken also isn't bought much by the federal government. So there isn't going to be Quicken and TurboTax. So there's just not 
going to be much way to, to leverage them, but they actually gave up accessibility that they had. Well, there's some interesting and thoughts there. I'm going to have to start to, to round this off. And a, as I do that, I might like to, uh, I think we'll go back to the three of you in, in turn uh, and just get some thoughts as to the remedies that you think may occur in this uh, Microsoft case, which, although we've strayed a little, is what brought us together. Uh, start with you, Daryl. What do you think is actually going to happen? I think that uh, Internet Explorer will be uh, unbundled from... Uh, Windows and uh, that uh, Microsoft may be fined substantially, and that's probably about all. Kelly Ford, what do you think? Uh, I, if I would probably say Microsoft would probably probably be told to come up with some sort of standard pricing for their operating systems. Uh, probably. Have a little bit more of their dealings with companies monitored. I don't see them being broken up. I don't see Internet Explorer being taken out of the operating system. Hmm. And I think I see them being a slap on the wrist of a fine and saying, you did bad. And uh, finally, Debbie Cook, you've uh, already mentioned that you don't think there's going to be a, a breakup of Microsoft, which seems to be the general consensus. What do you think will happen? Um, well, I think I think it's going to probably. I think that uh, the Kelly and Daryl are both pretty on target, actually. I mean, I I I don't think a great deal is going to happen when the fallout all really does happen. I I think there will be some very strong pressure to unbundle the browser, and I don't know whether they'll succeed with that, but I think that there will be some really, really strong pressure to do that. Um, and and um, beyond that, and some fines and some things, um, some kind of monitoring, and, and so, I don't really think things are going to be that different. It would be very, very easy for Microsoft to set itself up corporately differently if it needed to do so, and then just continue on as it does. Our guests for this segment have been Debbie Cook, Daryl Shandro, and Kelly Ford. If you'd like to keep up to date with what's happening on ACB Radio, join our announcements list. You'll receive messages from ACB Radio staff about feature programs, scheduled outages, and website additions. To join this announcements-only email list, send a blank email to acbradio-announce-subscribe at egroups.com. That's acbradio-announce-subscribe at egroups.com. Stay in touch with ACB Radio, the station that out of sight. Hello everybody, I'm the Snowman, inviting you to join me for my wild and wacky talk show called the Snowman Radio Broadcast. We get way off the beaten path, and I'll bet it's your kind of show. It's coming up soon, so stay tuned, and thanks for listening to ACB Radio. You're with ACB Radio Mainstream, I'm Jonathan Mosen, and this is our weekly look at technology main menu. Greetings, my name is Scott Rutkowski from Australia, and I'm very pleased that Jonathan Mosen has asked me to do a software review each week for the main menu show on acbradio.org. This week won't be a software review, it'll actually be a hardware review, but it's well worth it. And for those people who are interested in sort of new gadgets to play with on their computers and things like that, 
I think you'll be very interested in this particular review. Each week the review will go for about five minutes thereabouts. Uh, it'll go longer if necessary. This week I've decided to do a review on the Logitech Cordless Internet Keyboard. A fine piece of hardware for any computer system, this keyboard. I'll just describe it first of all and I'll tell you about some of the fine features that this keyboard has. I was actually put onto this keyboard by Jonathan who got one for Christmas last year and swore by the keyboard and uh, so I thought that I'd get one for myself so I could actually walk around the house with some cordless headphones and uh, use a software synthesizer like Eloquence or anything like that and I'll be a I can surf the net from anywhere. Now with this particular keyboard basically it comprises two pieces there's like a little transmitter or receiver which plugs into your keyboard port on the back of your PC and you get an adapter with it so you can either plug it into the older style XT and AT type keyboard connectors with the uh, five pin DINs or you get the you also get the smaller type DIN connector so you can connect it up to the newer type keyboard sockets on the back of your PC basically all you do is you you put two AA alkaline batteries into the keyboard and that's not too hard to do at all and then you actually plug the transmitter or the receiver into the actual keyboard port and you just turn on your PC and you get a CD-ROM with the keyboard which has the Logitech software that came with the keyboard on it and that allows you to do some, some really interesting things and I'll describe those shortly on the keyboard itself you've got the normal keyboard it's not the Microsoft style split keyboard that those people have come to like but it takes a bit of getting used to because you don't have the um, ergonomic design on like the old Microsoft keyboards have the beauty about this keyboard is that you've got the normal keys it's a normal size keyboard no wires offered or anything like that it's just the keyboard itself you get a palm rest which clips onto the front of the keyboard and that just slots into two little slots on the front and that sort of makes typing easier you've got the normal typewriter keys the windows key the two windows keys the logo key those sorts of things and above all of the function keys you've got a row of buttons and they're rubber buttons and they're different to all the other keys on the keyboard so you can tell them apart from everything the very left hand button on the keyboard is called the sleep key and what that does instead of going into the start menu and choosing shutdown which will bring up your choices of restart the computer shut down those sorts of things it actually brings that menu up with this one key press really nice feature that is it all the time and it really does work well the key just to the right a fair bit to the right actually is called the mute key and what you can do is actually, it actually mutes the sound from your sound card so you don't have to go into your application and try and find the mute function that's there for you you just press it and that depends whether the application itself does support the mute facility or not which is quite a nice th feature to have then you've got your volume down and volume up keys and they adjust the volume then you've also got you've got your 
I think it's play, stop, back and forward keys. And they work with Winamp. I think some of them work in Real Player 7. And the beauty is, you can either press B in Winamp to go to your next track or Z for the previous track, or you can use these little buttons, the skip and, uh, sorry, the back and forward buttons on the keyboard to actually go forward and back. And you've got a stop and a play key. And I think the play key also acts as a pause key as well. That, that's a really valuable function to have on the keyboard, so you don't have to come back and try and find the stop control, whatever. You've also got over on the right-hand corner of the keyboard. You've also got some. You've got four programmable keys, and what you can do with them. The top of the there's four keys. There's two in each row. The top left of these keys is called the mail key. The, all these keys can be redefined through the Logitech software, which is quite easy to use. Uh, the beauty about it is you just press one key and it'll launch a mail application like Outlook Express or Calypso, whatever email client you happen to use. I've got mine set up to launch Calypso, so you just press it once and it just brings Calypso up straight away. Really, really nice. You don't have to press your hotkey like Alt Control P or Alt Control M, whatever your mail hotkey happens to be. Just to the right, you've got a key called the Go key. What that does, it'll you can actually launch a website from this key, so you can go to your favorite web page. So instead of setting it up to be the first page in Internet Explorer or Netscape, it'll just come up straight away for you, which is quite good. Under that, you've got the Search key, and that can be set up to go to another website or a search engine, whatever you'd like it to go to. It can do that for you. And the other key is the... Um, forgotten the name of the key for the moment, but it's very similar to the other two keys described earlier. Now, with all of these particular keys, you can launch applications, and you can also launch uh, menus, which I haven't quite played with yet. But it is quite good because I've got my one of the keys I've got set to launch Winamp. So I don't have to go into the programs menu off the start menu and go looking through the list of programs for Winamp. I can just press the key and it'll launch it for me straight away. Another key I've got set up for FireTalk, which is a phone program which we'll be talking about in a later review. It, it works the same way. You just press the key and it'll actually launch that program for you. Overall, this keyboard, I'll give it 10 out of 10. It's a great keyboard. The software that comes with the keyboard is very speech-friendly. It uses standard Windows controls, works with Windows and JFW. The only thing you have to do with JFW is you need to turn on standard keyboard processing, which is under the configuration uh, menu or the configuration manager under the keyboard options in the settings menu. Once you turn this on, the keyboard will act as normal. If you don't actually turn on that particular function, your insert key on your keyboard will act like it's always being pressed. And it's not too good when you want to use it with other combinations of keys. So once you turn that function on, the standard keyboard processing the keyboard will perform as any keyboard should. Just some final comments on the keyboard. I think from memory in the US they go for about 
$69 or $89 or something of that nature. I can't quite remember the exact price. I paid $130 here in Australia for the keyboard. It comes in a rather large box, easy to set up, and you get the two AA batteries with the keyboard. The actual time on the battery life depends on how often you use your keyboard and there is a feature in the software that comes with the keyboard to tell you how the battery life is going at the moment. Uh, at the moment mine is saying that it's good which means that it's um, probably more than half full. They recommend, they actually say in the actual manual that the keyboard battery should go for about five months or so but uh, I use mine all the time so it may actually go for less time we'll have to find out when the battery goes flat the only time that the battery does get used is when you actually use the keyboard itself and when it's transmitting back to the receiver and then that's transmitting back to your computer the actual receiver itself doesn't run on any batteries it gets its power from the actual keyboard port from your computer I recommend this keyboard to anyone who's serious about uh, using the internet and who wants to actually have some cordless headphones which I'll be reviewing in another show and so yeah grab one of these keyboards if you're interested and I think you'll be very pleased with it I was very pleased setting it up on the first night and just lying in bed with the cordless headphones and I could surf the net do everything that I could do sitting in front of my computer thanks for listening to this review if anybody wants to um, ask any questions they can send email to the PC audio list and I'll be happy to answer any questions on the keyboard there for them. Thanks again for listening to this review. We'll be back next week with another fine review on acbradio.org. ACB Radio offers an email list that gives the same information as our popular announcements list, but in addition, it allows you to interact with other ACB Radio listeners, discuss the programming and share ideas with the ACB Radio listeners and staff. To join the ACB Radio discussion list, send a blank email to acbradio-friends-subscribe at egroups.com. That's acbradio-friends-subscribe at egroups.com. Keep in touch with ACB Radio, the station that's out of sight. There's much more to come on ACB Radio, including an extended interview with Stephen Baum of Lenart and Houseby about Kurzweil 1000 version 5.0, and we also take a look at their RealSpeak software speech synthesizer. A lot of people think a lot of the synthesizer, so stay tuned and see what you think. We'll also be hearing from DJC and Joy Tilton looking at a talking microwave oven. And we'll be taking a satirical look at the trials and tribulations of beta testing. Right now, though, the first in what will be a regular series of looks at Linux. Now, it's interesting that despite the increasing usability by blind and vision-impaired people of the GUI, there seems to be a resurgence of interest in command-line interfaces. Mind you, this is also the case in the sighted community as well. Linux is becoming very, very fashionable. And for those of you who want to go back to a command-line or perhaps stay with a command line, uh, we will be telling you in this series all about Linux and uh, how to make it go. Here's the first in our series of programs on the subject from Matt Campbell. Hello, and welcome to the first edition of Learning Linux with Matt Campbell. Over the coming weeks, I'll be providing tips, tricks, and tutorials for setting up and using Linux without sight. But first, I thought I'd give an introduction to Linux, 
for those who know little or nothing about it. First of all, what is Linux? It's a computer operating system, as DOS and Windows are operating systems. Linux is based on Unix, which you're probably familiar with if you've ever used an internet, an internet service provider through a shell account. Linux has several advantages over Windows, which have nothing to do with blindness. Linux is much more reliable than Windows. It rarely crashes and is immune to most viruses. Linux is also more efficient with your computer's processor, memory, and other resources. One result of this is that Linux is especially useful on older hardware. For example, you can run a modern Linux operating system on a 486 PC without having to wait half a minute for your applications to load. Linux also gives you a choice with everything. For example, it provides both a graphical and text-based user interface. Linux is free or inexpensive. You can download it from the internet for free, or you can get it on CD-ROM for three to five US dollars. There are also more expensive commercial Linux distributions, which include printed documentation and technical support from the vendor. You can also get good technical support for free from Linux users and even developers over the internet. You can get it through email, either one-on-one -on -one or on a mailing list, or through various internet chat systems, such as Internet Relay Chat and the Speak Freely Internet Phone Program. Finally, Linux is open source software. This means that any programmer with sufficient skill can examine and change the source code which Linux programmers use to write the operating system. So, any programmer with enough skill can find and fix problems quickly before they have disastrous consequences, or make improvements to the software and send them back to the original developers. Linux has special advantages for blind people. Some blind people strongly prefer a text-based interface over a graphical interface. Linux is a good choice for them because it's a modern operating system which provides a text interface. In addition, the Access technology under Linux for blind people is free. I'll get back to that shortly. These two facts, as well as the fact that Linux runs well on older hardware, make it a good choice for blind people who use DOS and are unable or unwilling to upgrade to Windows. All of this is great, but Linux also has its disadvantages. Some hardware devices are poorly supported or not supported at all under Linux. For example, some devices, such as wind modems, can't be supported under Linux because their manufacturers won't release documentation about how the devices work. Also, some, some sound cards, sorry, such as the ESS Solo 1 used in some laptops, are poorly supported under Linux, and some speech synthesizers aren't yet supported, but this is changing as more drivers are written. There are also some applications which are currently only available under Windows, including optical character recognition software like Arkenstone's OpenBook, the Windows Media Player, and some games. Finally, there's not yet a good screen access program for the X Windows system, which is the graphical user interface in Linux. So, for example, if you're a blind person using Linux, you can't yet, yet use the Netscape web browser meaning that you can't use web pages which rely on Java or JavaScript. You also won't be able to access 
graphical word processors, and office suites, like what you may be used to under Windows, and access to RealPlayer is limited, though I'm working on a fix for this problem. Let's take a look at the access technology that's available for Linux. One program which will give you access to Linux is EmacSpeak, which is not a screen reader, but a speech interface for Emacs. Emacs is a text editor from which you can do anything. Unlike screen readers, Emacs Speak doesn't speak the visually laid out screen display, but the original information from which that display came. For more information about Emacs Speak, check out its website at emacspeak, E-M-A-C-S-P-E-A-K, dot sourceforge, dot net. Secondly, BRLTTY gives you access to Linux through a braille display. For more information about that, check out the website at cam.org slash tilde n-i-c-o slash b-r-l-t-t-y. Finally, SpeakUp is a screen reader for Linux, which is built into the operating system itself. This means that SpeakUp will provide speech from the time you start up to the time you shut down. You can even install Linux with speech without cited assistance. For more information about SpeakUp, check out its website at linux-speakup.org. Linux comes in various distributions, which are packaged in different ways. One is Debian, a non-commercial Linux distribution which provides a wide variety of software ready to install and run. One of the most important features of Debian is DPKG, the Debian Package Manager which provides a consistent way of installing, removing, and otherwise working with software packages under Linux. For more information about Debian, check out its website at Debian, D-E-B-I-A-N, org. Another popular Linux distribution is Red Hat, which is probably the leading commercial distribution of Linux. It aims to be easy to install and use, at least for sighted people who have access to the graphical interface. One of Red Hat's main selling points is RPM, the Red Hat Package Manager, which has similar features to those found in DPKG. For more information about Red Hat, check out the website at redhat.com. Finally, Slackware was one of the first Linux distributions to be created. Its package management system is limited in that you currently can't easily upgrade the whole system. However, Slackware has especially speech-friendly installation and configuration tools. There is a special version of, Zips, of Slackware called ZipSlack, which you can install with little difficulty on an existing DOS or Windows system. Recently, I made a special version of ZipSlack called ZipSpeak, which includes the SpeakUp screen reader ready, ready to use um, for more information about Slackware, check out its website at slackware.com. Now that you've heard some introductory information about Linux, you may want to know where you can go to find out more and to get help. For general Linux documentation, check out the website of the, the Linux Documentation Project at linuxdoc.org. There's also a mailing list specifically for new blind users of Linux and for blind people who are considering Linux and want to know more. It's called Linux Newbie, and you can join it by sending a blank email to blinux, B-L-I-N-U-X, 
dash newbie, N-E-W-B-I-E dash subscribe at egroups.com. Well, that's all I have for now. If you have any questions or comments about what you've just heard, you can email me at mattcamp, M-A-T-T-C-A-M-P, at crosswinds, C-R-O-S-S-W-I-N-D-S, dot net. Next week, I plan to explain and demonstrate the installation of ZipSpeak. Until then, goodbye, and have a good week. ACB Radio is unique. It's the only internet radio station run by the blind for the blind, and we want you to get involved. Already there are blindness organizations from around the world and individuals who are blind or visually impaired doing programs on ACB Radio. Now, the programs don't have to be blindness-related. If you're a blind person and you want to put a talk show or a music program together, we're interested in hearing from you too. How about those of you who belong to computer clubs? Why not share your demonstrations and your tutorials with us? The possibilities are endless and we want to discuss them. Send an email to support at acbradio.org. That's support at acbradio.org. This is our place, the place for blind and visually impaired people to hear themselves, to have their ideals and their challenges reflected. Be a part of it. ACB Radio, it's your station and it's out of sight. Thank you, Jonathan Mosen. Thank you, Jim Snowbarger. That was the first part of our main menu salute. Next week, we'll continue with the final segments of main menu here on ACB Radio. And uh, then, of course, the big extravaganza with the roundtable discussion on the 22nd. That's a live two-hour show. And if you'd like to contribute, it's main menu at acbradio.org. Main Menu is a program brought to you by the American Council of the Blind and ACB Radio. It airs every Friday night on ACB Radio Mainstream beginning at 9 p.m. Eastern, repeating at various times throughout the week. To listen and view the schedule, go to acbradio.org slash mainstream. You can also tune in with your favorite radio app slash device or use ACB Link for Android or iOS. Call area code 605-475-8130. Do you have an idea, suggestion, or contribution you'd like us to consider? Please email mainmenu at acbradio.org. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Main Menu. Please note that airing of any content is subject to approval by the Main Menu team. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on another edition of Main Menu.